Today on Peace Talks Radio, we recall the life and times of Nelson Mandela. There's Mr. Mandela, Mr. Nelson Mandela, a free man taking his first steps into a new South Africa. We talk with Joe Richmond, the radio documentarian who spent a year digging through the archive on Mandela's extraordinary history to create a major radio series on the South African leader. I've been documenting his life and his history for, for a year. And then finally interviewing him, I felt like, okay, I would take a bullet for this guy. Also, we'll hear comments from previous guests on our program who've put Mandela's contribution to peacemaking into perspective. If you are kept in, in, in prison for 26 years, and you come out without any bitterness towards those who had put you there. That reminds me every day that there's not a single problem in the world that cannot be solved. Our conversational profile of Nelson Mandela today on Peace Talks Radio. There's Mr. Mandela, Mr. Nelson Mandela, the free man taking his first steps into a new South Africa. And a salute from Mr. Nelson Mandela, his wife Winnie, greeting the people, his first public appearance in nearly three decades. The February 11, 1990 release of Nelson Mandela from prison in South Africa. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Over our years of spotlighting the work of peacemakers throughout history and in today's world, certain names turn up again and again as inspirational examples of leaders who showed great patience and courage in the face of violence, and who embraced an understanding of their oppressors and even a kind of empathy. Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., the Dalai Lama, and certainly Nelson Mandela. While in prison from 1964 to 1990, Mandela became a symbol for the apartheid resistance which withstood bloody massacres and continued oppression while Mandela and other resistance leaders were in jail. Pressure from both within and outside of South Africa resulted in political changes that led to Mandela's release and the allowance of parties like the African National Congress. Mandela helped negotiate the end of apartheid policies and was elected president of South Africa, a post he held from 1994 to 1999. Today we'll hear some of our former guests who, during our interviews with them, assessed the importance and impact of Mandela's life and example. We'll also hear from producer Joe Richmond, who researched Mandela's life for over a year to produce the 2004 series and special, Mandela, an Audio History. Joe's allowing us to excerpt some of the more compelling moments from his award-winning series, which blended archival tape, news reports, old and new interviews to tell the tale both of Mandela and the black South Africans and anti-apartheid activists' decades-long struggle for civil rights. 72 years old, walking strongly step-by-step, and one wonders what must be passing through Mr. Mandela's mind at this moment. When I saw that crowd, uh, I must confess that uh, I didn't have the courage and the confidence, you know, to speak to them. I never imagined that uh, there would be such crowds. Uh, rather took me by surprise. I think it took more than an hour for us just to go through the crowd to be able to go to the platform. 
today, the majority of South Africans, black and white, recognize that apartheid has no future. Uh, Joe, when and why did you want to jump in and produce this special on the Nelson Mandela story? There were a lot of things. I mean, one one was just uh, personally, my wife and I decided to move to South Africa um, for a year. It actually ended up being more than a year. So that was part of, you know, it was the project that drew us there and also the wanting to go there drew us to the project. But I had had, I mean, the, the story was something that had had kind of been in my brain for a long time. I mean, actually, my commencement speaker in college was Desmond Tutu back in the days when divestment was a big issue on campus. So it was just something that was kind of like in my, I think, in my DNA somewhere along the way. And then we moved to South Africa and, you know, doing interviews with all of these folks, you know, whether it was the Robben Island prisoners or the activists or even people on the on the white national party, it was like it was like a master class, you know, it's like moving to a country and having a master class in the history of the country. And just on that level, it was an incredible gift to be able to move there and plunge in that deeply in that way. The result is this very artful blend of archival recordings and your new interviews. How did you go about the pursuit of your material on this one? Uh, well, that was, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of an archival tape geek anyway, and this project was just like a dream on that level because we got to just spend so much time in these archives like the uh, SABC which is the public broadcaster in South Africa they were so generous and they just opened up their basement archives to me I spent like a week there going through all sorts of reel-to-reel tapes and mini discs and like whatever they had and it you know it hadn't really been cataloged very well and so you just kind of go through the stuff and you stumble on like the weirdest things you know there's this there were recordings from Mandela's Rivonia trial that had never been heard before, you know, and I was, you know, there was this real to real tape that was like mislabeled and it turned out to be the defense attorney from Mandela's trial, the trial that sent him to prison for 27 years. And it was just like, I put it on the real to real player and it was like falling apart. And I had to like, I asked for splicing tape and razor blades and I had to like splice the tape back together just to even listen to it. Firstly, the state alleges the planned purpose thereof was to bring about chaos, disorder, and turmoil in the battle to be waged against the white man in this country. They were called terrorists. We knew that there was no hope of getting an acquittal. The question was, what do we do with a trial? Our approach was one of defiance because uh, we said it is the government that is a criminal and that should be standing in the dock to face a trial. We are not guilty. That, the Lord, is the case for the state. And part of what you get from those recordings are the words of the defense's case, but also the other, the other thing you get is just the sound of the courtroom. You know, there are these coughs and these kind of moving around and you kind of hear the atmosphere and the kind of space of the courtroom. And so that's the kind of thing that doesn't always get preserved. But for a radio producer, that stuff is just really important because it puts us there. The courtroom was absolutely packed. He stood up and he proceeded to deliver the speech. During my lifetime, I have dedicated my life to this struggle of the African people. And I have that was a four-hour speech. 
But that last bit where he said, these are the ideas for which I am prepared to die, just that last bit. I knew what he was going to say because we'd all seen the speech, everybody had made comments about it, and I knew he was going to say, in effect, hang me if you dare to, Mr. Judge. But only when he said it. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an idea for which I hope to live for. But my Lord, if it needs be, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. It was terribly moving. Nobody said anything. Even the judge didn't know what to say. I knew it was a moment of history. He emerged then as a great leader. I remember we adjourned for lunch and a friendly African awarder asked me the question, Mandela, what do you think is going to happen to you in this case? I said to him, ah, they are going to hang us. Now, I was really expecting some word of encouragement from him, and I thought he was going to say, ah, man, you see, that can never happen. But he became serious, and then he said, uh, I think you're right, they're going to hang you. And so being able to use all these archival elements to recreate the trial um, was probably one of my favorite parts of the whole documentary series. Somehow, even though much of your audience knows the history, there's a sense of a cliffhanger as you're listening to that type of audio where your brain kind of plays a trick on you or something. I don't know how to describe it, except that, like, what is going to happen next? You know, what are they going to say? What's, right. What? Isn't, isn't that the amazing thing? If you, can, <laughs> well, if, you can, if you can go back to history and kind of make it feel like you don't know what's going to happen next, yeah. <laughs> that would be well, That's goal. what you did so well. Oh, thank you. The next day, armed police massed in even greater force as Mr. Justice DeVette was passing sentence. I am by no means convinced that the matter of the accused were as altruistic as they wish the court to believe. When they said, stand up for your sentence, we thought, well, here it comes. The sentence in the case of all the accused will be one of life imprisonment. As you Lord. Very well, the court will then adjourn. And um, we laughed. We turned to each other and laughed. Because we expected to be hanged. At the back entrance to the Pretoria Court, Large crowds gather to watch the accused being driven away to start their life sentences. Nelson Mandela did become the symbol of the struggle for liberation in South Africa. People could identify with Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela the lawyer. Nelson Mandela the hero. Nelson Mandela the handsome man. But it was the response to his Ravonia trial speech 
pulled throughout the world as the I am prepared to die speech, which kind of somersaulted him and the African National Congress and the need to put an end to apartheid into the world consciousness. As we were being flown uh, to Robben Island, one tried uh, to accept the reality that we may in fact spend years in prison. But we believed very strongly that we would not die in jail. We would return. One interview that he did right when he got out of prison, he did this interview with four journalists um, very early um, after he'd been released. And that interview he's just really talking as a man, you know, talking about, you know, his thoughts being in prison when he got out. Um, It's the most reflective and personal and kind of engaging interview that I've ever heard with Mandela. And some, at some point after that, he sort of stopped talking in that way. And um, I guess as, you know, as a radio producer, having that interview was, of course, incredibly useful because that's, of all the Mandela tape that we use, the archival Mandela tape, I'd say 90% of it came from that one interview. Joe Richmond is the executive producer of Mandela on Audio History. He's talking to us from his offices in New York City. You, you really wanted a personal interview with Mandela for this project, of course, all that time that you were in South Africa, but weren't sure you'd be able to, to get to see him yeah, it was just incredibly hard to get any sort of access for him over those over those later years, and so we tried for about a year to get interviews and and, and failed. And uh, because he had stopped doing interviews, this is you know around the um, two thousand three two thousand four, he had kind of retreated from public life a bit, and it was just really hard to get that that kind of access. And the way it finally happened was that um, we had grown close with his uh, family doctor who was also an activist, very important man, in Tato Matlana, who's now dead. And we just really had a great relationship with him. And he called me up one time, we were living in Cape Town, and he called me up to Johannesburg and he said, you got to come to this event, Mandela's going to be accepting an award, and I'll put you on the VIP bus and you'll finally be able to meet him and do that interview that you really want to do. So I went up to Johannesburg and of course, you know, there were like, you know, thousands of people there. There was no way I was going to get kind of close and, and get that, that get that interview with Mandela. And um, after the big event, um, Dr. Ntato Madlana was driving me back to Johannesburg and he took this different route back and he, uh, and he stopped at this big house that I later realized was Mandela's house and he went in and about 20 minutes later, a guard came out and ushered me in and I went into this living room, and there were a group of people having lunch. I recognized Grasso Michelle, who's his wife, and one of his children. And I saw the back of Mandela's head. And they were having lunch, and they ushered me in. And they, there was a table setting for me, and I sat down. And uh, I had lunch with his family <laughs> as they were finishing up lunch. And they continued to talk about kind of just mundane things. I think they were talking about it. He had an eye doctor appointment coming up. And after lunch was over, um, Mandela and Dr. Matlana and I went into the living room and Mandela finally gave me the interview that I had been searching for for, for about a year. So how long were you able to talk with him and, and what uh, was that like? What came through for you? Well, at that point, 
the most important thing that I needed was for him to say, my name is Nelson Mandela. You know, we do these non-narrated programs and we have people identify themselves. And, you know, we, we had a lot of tape of him already from old interviews. And well, let me, let me go back a little bit. You know, at that point, the most important thing that I wanted from him was to give some introduction to the series that we had done, something that framed it, something that gave a reason to kind of look back and, and you know, and, and document and understand this history. So that's what I asked him about. My name is Nelson Mandela. It is always important to look at your history. You can't really be proud of yourself if you don't know your history. That couldn't have framed it any better. You didn't spoon feed him that. He he gave it to you, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, what I really wanted was was his thoughts on why it's important to go back and look at this, look at your history. And he just said the most beautiful thing about you know, you can't even know yourself until you know your history. And I think that that helped frame the series. It, it helped for me, too, to kind of frame, you know, to give purpose to the idea of going back and telling history, which is something that I love to do. And it's good to be reminded of why that's important. Well, many times when one meets a larger-than-life figure or any celebrity, you know, the overall feeling can very easily be a letdown. What about the overall sense of your encounter with him? Uh, it was the exact opposite. I mean, I Can you say you got a sense of the man in that relatively brief time that matched what you had been hearing about him? Well, you know, the, the, the funny thing about Mandela is that people, you know, he's considered such a charismatic kind of magnetic figure. But when you listen to interviews with him, he's not that way at all in terms of the way he talks. Like, he's not a great talker. He's not a charismatic speaker. His interviews... You know, he's not very kind of personal and magnetic and reflective and poetic in the way that he talks. And yet, when I did meet him and I did interview him, it felt that way. It felt completely like you just feel this, like, kind of magnetic atmosphere all around. And I remember, you know, it it had been a year of trying to interview him and, you know, frustrated at not being able to get access to this to this man that I've been documenting his life and his history for, for a year. And then finally interviewing him, I felt like, okay, I would take a bullet for this guy. That's Joe Richmond, the producer, along with Sue Johnson, of the radio series Mandela, an audio history. Heard on NPR's All Things Considered in 2004 and elsewhere across the public radio network in the years since. Later, we'll hear more from what he thought were the most compelling moments in his documentary as our way to mark the impact of Nelson Mandela on the lives of the people of South Africa and of others around the world. I'm Peace Talks radio producer Paul Ingalls. What some of our other guests on our program have said about Mandela over the years when we come back after this break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We are today recalling the impact of Nelson Mandela on the struggle against apartheid in South Africa and considering the example he set for others fighting oppression around the world. As we've talked about peacemaking with others here on our program, Mandela's name has come up often without prompting, as a figure worth emulating. Here are just a few examples. First, Dorothy Cotton, who worked closely with Martin Luther King Jr. during the civil rights struggles in the United States. She talked with our Carol Boss about how King and Mandela's efforts went somewhat hand in hand. There has to be a vision, and that vision has to be broadcast across the land through every institution and and on the streets and corners and taverns and wherever people gather. And I think we then would really begin to see that there is another way and we can work towards that other way, that better way, and move towards a nonviolent, uh, beloved community. Dr. Cotton, let me ask you if, you if you can think of any current examples to illustrate how his principles, his teachings, his vision has been practiced effectively. Well, I think if we wanted to really look at um, other countries, uh, Dr. King taught that unearned suffering is redemptive, and I believe that uh, you know, that movement and that dream for freedom is alive and well. We have signs of that, and you know, look at the, the Dalai Lama, who still, after all these years, reminds his followers that the nonviolent way will, in time, bring concessions from China that are even unimaginable at present. Oh, hey, we have a wonderful example in South Africa, don't we, uh, where there were decades of resistance to apartheid. And um, slowly but surely, it wore away the stones of oppression. And if anyone would read uh, Nelson Mandela's um, Long Walk to Freedom, for example, we see that, you know, you can't put a time limit on a nonviolent campaign. You can't put a time limit on it, and you can't decide what you have to suffer even. Unearned suffering is redemptive, and I believe that that is indeed uh, true. And if we wanted to study and really look at your places where people have practiced some degree of nonviolence, we can see some good, and ultimately uh, we can look where change has occurred from you know the Philippines, uh, Chile, and as I mentioned China, and, and certainly uh, South Africa. And we can delve into those uh, those places and look at how people brought about change, it doesn't mean that nobody's going to suffer. So when you ask if it's effective, I think um, it is, it's always effective, but it do- doesn't mean it's effective or that it will bring about the change immediately. Again, we cannot put a time limit on a nonviolent campaign. Dr. Dorothy Cotton, colleague of Martin Luther King, Jr. Paul Chappelle is a former Army captain who's written many books about waging peace, He conjured up the example of Nelson Mandela in a conversation with our Suzanne Kreider about empathy building. I think that empathy has to be strengthened through training and through practice. And one example of how to strengthen it is I think that so much of the dialogue in our country is very divisive and polarizing and demonizing of each each side. And one thing I explain to people, especially when I do this peace leadership training, is try to imagine yourself talking to somebody who has the complete opposite viewpoint of you. And how would you not only have empathy for that person, how would you not get angry? How would you not get angry? How would you not lose your temper? And how would you even have empathy? And that's a very difficult thing to do. 
especially when you're talking about a very controversial issue. And that's what King and Gandhi and Nelson Mandela and others were able to do so well. And so one thing I say, just a practical thing people can do, is if you're talking to anybody who has the opposing viewpoint, it is so important to listen and be respectful. If all you do is listen and be respectful, that is an important victory. Because I don't think there's ever been anyone in human history who has seriously said, I hate it when people listen to me. I hate it when people respect me. I can't stand it when people listen to me or respect me. Everybody likes to be listened to. Everybody likes to be respected. So when you listen to people and you are respectful, you make a very strong impression on them especially in a culture like ours where there is so little respect and so little listening. If you listen to somebody about a controversial issue like war, you have one viewpoint, they have the opposite viewpoint, and if you listen to that person, they'll walk away from the conversation and they might say, wow, those peace people, we don't see eye to eye, but they are really nice people. That person actually listened to me. And my own wife doesn't listen to me. My children don't listen to me. Nobody listens to me. I get what you mean by listening. I can see people listening. Break it down. What is being respectful? What What are our listeners doing or not doing? Well, that's what I'm uh, trying to get to is basically people ask me then, well, how do you listen to people? And the key to listening is you have to have empathy. If you don't have empathy for somebody, you can't really hear what they're saying. Even if the person has the most outrageous viewpoint you can imagine. If you empathize with a person, that's when you begin to understand where they're coming from. Because if you look at Martin Luther King Jr., he was getting dozens of death threats a day, his house was bombed, he was arrested multiple times, he was eventually killed. But you never saw him talk about the people who were oppressing him in this demonizing, dehumanizing way that you see liberals talk about conservatives and vice versa. And he had much more right to demonized his opponent. Or look at Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was in jail for 27 years. And he was actually able to win the hearts and minds of some of his prison guards through having a respectful attitude toward them. So the thing about waging peace is that you respect them as a human being and you recognize that in this struggle, your opponent is ignorance, your opponent is hatred, your opponent is greed, your opponent is misunderstanding. And you want to attack their hatred and defeat it. You want to attack their ignorance. You want to attack their misunderstanding. And how do you do that effectively? And if you hate them back or if you demonize them, you actually magnify their hatred. And by respecting them, it opens a doorway where you can directly attack their hatred, attack their ignorance. And you can't convert everybody from that opposing point of view, but as King and Mandela and Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony and many many others showed, you can convert quite a number and enough to create critical mass in how people think. Former Army Captain and author Paul Chappelle. And here's one of Nelson Mandela's fellow Nobel Peace laureates, Marty Artasari, the 2008 Nobel Peace Prize winner from Finland, who worked for peace and independence in many places around the globe, including Africa. Later, he served with Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Jimmy Carter, and others in the Peace Elders Group. I learned to know him uh, well before he became uh, president when he was released from Robben Island. And... I think he comes close to a saint that many people say that that one should not say this, but but I I do say it because if you are kept in 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 prison for 26 years, 
and you come out without any bitterness towards those who had put you there. And you might have think that it was totally unfairly that you were put to jail, or Robben Island for that matter. Uh, he, because he realized that that was the only way how, how you could start building a new South Africa. It also shows how important the role of one single human being is in, in these processes. And particularly, not the mediator so much, but, <laughs> but the, 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 on the side of the parties who have to make an agreement. But um, therefore, when I was two, 2009 asked to join the elders group with Mandela and, and Archbishop Tutu established, my invitation came in 2009. I wrote to Archbishop Tutu that this is one of the requests that I can't say no. So I, I'm very pleased. In my office, I have only two paintings. They are both presents from, from President uh, Mandela to me and my wife. And I will not allow any other paintings on my walls. I have also a piece of rock, the chalk, rock that he, he gave to me when I was visiting him when he was president. That reminds me every day that there's not a single problem in the world that cannot be solved. We are moved by a sense of joy and exhilaration when the grass turns green and the flowers bloom. Nelson Mandela's inauguration speech when he became president of South Africa in 1994. That's the ritual and physical oneness we all share with this common homeland explains that the depth of the pain we all carried in our hearts as we saw our country tear itself apart in terrible conflicts and as we saw it spanned, outlawed and isolated by the peoples of the world precisely because it had become the universal base of the pernicious ideology and practice of racism and racial oppression. We, the people of South Africa, feel fulfilled that humanity has taken us back into its bosom, that we, who were outlaws not so long ago, have today been given the rare privilege to be host to the nations of the world on our own soil. We thank all our distinguished international guests for having come to take position, possession with the people of our country. What is, after all, a common victory for justice, for peace, for human dignity? We trust that you will continue to stand by us as we tackle the challenges of building peace, prosperity, non-sexism, non-racialism, and democracy. We deeply appreciate the role that the masses of our people and their political, mass democratic, religious, women, youth, business, traditional and other leaders have played to bring about this conclusion. Not least amongst them 
is my second deputy president, the Honorable F.W. de Klerk. The time for the healing of the wounds has come. The moment to preach the cousins that divides us has come. The time to build is upon us. We have at last achieved our political emancipation. We pledge ourselves to liberate all our people from the continuing bondage of poverty deprivation, suffering, gender, and other discrimination. We succeeded to take our last steps to freedom in conditions of relative peace. We commit ourselves to the construction of a complete, just, and lasting peace. We have triumphed in the effort to implant hope in the press of the millions of our people. We enter into a covenant that we shall build a society in which all South Africans, both black and white, will be able to walk tall without any fear in their hearts, assured of their inalienable right to human dignity, a rainbow nation at peace with itself and the world. As a token of this commitment to the renewal of our country, the new interim government of national unity will, as a matter of urgency, address the issue of amnesty for various categories of our people who are currently serving terms of imprisonment. We dedicate this day to all the heroes and heroines in this country and the rest of the world who sacrificed in many ways and surrendered their lives so that we could be free. Their dreams have become reality. Freedom is their reward. We are both humbled and elevated by the honor and privilege that you, the people of South Africa, have bestowed on us as the first president of a united, democratic, non-racial, and non-sexist South Africa to lead our country out of the valley of darkness. We understand it still that there is no easy road to freedom. We know it well that none of us acting alone can achieve success. We must therefore act together as a united people for national reconciliation, for nation building, for the birth of a new world. Let there be justice for all. Let there be peace for all. Let there be work, bread, water, and salt for all. Let each know that for each, the body, the mind, and the soul have been freed to fulfill themselves. Never, never, and never again shall it be that this beautiful land will again experience the oppression of one by another and suffer the indignity.
and suffer the indignity of being the skunk of the world. The sun shall never set on so glorious a human achievement. Let freedom reign. God bless Africa. I thank you. The inaugural speech of Nelson Mandela, becoming president of South Africa in 1994. We'll have more as we recall the life and times of Nelson Mandela on Peace Talks Radio right after this break. I'm Paul Ingalls, producer of Peace Talks Radio. We're online at peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all of the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution dating back to 2002. That's peacetalksradio.com. This time, we're remembering the story of Nelson Mandela's ultimately successful campaign against apartheid in South Africa. Let's hear more now from radio documentarian Joe Richmond, who spent over a year researching the story for an award-winning series called Mandela, an audio history, which combined archival recordings, newscasts, speeches, interviews, found sound, along with original new interviews of the many principal players in the struggle against apartheid that saw Nelson Mandela and other leaders of the movement against the government policy locked away in prison for decades. Well, you mentioned the tape of the trial itself. Uh, What were some of the other more exciting archival finds in your research there? Well, I mean, there were some that, you know, maybe that weren't, so important but that I just kind of fell in love with. There was one piece that we used with this uh, Dutch interview with Winnie Mandela, this phone call, and it's just something so kind of lovely about having, hearing the outside world kind of come into South Africa and Winnie Mandela, um, I'd have to kind of hear to talk more about it, but the, you know, this Dutch radio host interviewing Winnie Mandela and sort of trying to express his support. Your husband has been in prison now for 22 years. It is incredible that he is still the most popular leader in South Africa. He is a symbol of the aspirations of the black people of this country. In the early 80s, the world in some sense became obsessed by this political prisoner. Our thoughts are with you. Thank you so much for your solidarity. We will meet in freedom. Certainly, Amanda. Amanda, you wait to. Thank you very much, Mrs. Mandela. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. You can almost hear her knowing, endearing kind of chuckle at his at his um, raised fist. And, you know, we will meet in freedom. And so there are all sorts of just oddities, you know, that you can stumble on, especially that you stumble on, I think, in the, you know, when it's audio only and the stuff that people have kind of missed. What were a couple of the most engaging new interviews 
that you think really contributed to this special? As a category, without a doubt, it was the folks who were imprisoned on Robben Island that, you know, made the, made the biggest mark on me. I mean, everyone that we sat down with to interview of those guys who had spent years imprisoned, they all had this, like, uh, like gravity and peace and, like, just sort of, like, centered calm quality that, you know, there was just, I think, something about having spent those years in prison and for a reason, for a purpose, did something to those folks. And all of them were just some of the most impressive and kind of like moving interviews that, I, that I've ever, you know, moving, you know, talkers that I've ever met. There were amusing moments in some of those interviews. I'm thinking of the one gentleman, and maybe you can identify who it was, who was describing how even in prison you had to make an appointment with somebody to talk with them. <laughs> People would say that life in prison is very tedious. But uh, nobody wandered around bored, doing nothing. And if I wanted to see you, I needed to make an appointment with you. Can you believe that in prison I have to make an appointment to see somebody when I'm locked up with you for 24 hours a day? And people were pretty strict about it. I couldn't go up to somebody and say, okay, can we have a chat about this? No, we can't. I'm booked. But uh, I ended up being like that because if you didn't have appointments, your life would have been unstructured and meaningless. Yeah, yeah. That was Sonny Venkatrathanam, who, uh, who in, we interviewed in Durban and... He was, yeah, he was a lovely interview. And actually he was, I would say, one of my favorites just because, you know, with, with interviews, sometimes you go in and it feels like they're saying things that they had said before. And of course, some people have been interviewed many times. He was a guy who had not been interviewed that often. And we ended up spending, I don't know, it must have been, it was, you know, it was like a four or five hour interview. And we just sat with him and we had, you know, food with him and it just... You know, there, there are some times when you just really connect with people more than others, and I remember I remember that time with, with, with him. A few more questions, Joe. What's another favorite moment in your program uh, where you got the pieces that you wanted and you were especially happy about how they all play out for the listener? Well, I think about two. I mean, um, one, <laughs> there's one kind of funny story that we had we had become friendly with one of Mandela's warders, one of his prison guards, a guy named Christo Brand, who in the years after they all got released had actually become friends with a friend of Mandela's in prison, Ahmed Kathrada. So Christo Brand, we were interviewing about those years in prison, and he just mentioned, uh, he just like this small little mention that he still had a cassette tape from one of the surveillance recordings of Mandela in prison. And of course, like, uh, you know, I went into kind of high alert. And for the next few months, I tried to convince him to let us hear that tape. And he stalled for a while. And it just, it you know, it took a lot of, lot of convincing. He said he didn't know where it was and all sorts of things. And finally, after months, um, I met him and he handed over this cassette, which on one side it said it just was labeled Christian Rock. <laughs> And then the other side was blank. And I went to listen to this cassette tape. And, you know, 
this is you know there have been no recordings of Mandela in prison. Mandela's voice had was you know no one has a recording of Mandela's voice in prison, and so I thought it was just like this diamond, this like, and uh, I put it in the cassette recorder, and it basically sounded like you couldn't understand anything. <laughs> But the thing that it was, you know, it, it was both this terrible disappointment, but also still this magical find because of what it gave for us. You couldn't really understand the words, but what it was was a prison visit with Mandela's family and Mandela while he was on Robben Island. And what it gave for us was it put us there, you know, like you couldn't understand the words. It wasn't like the historic recording that I had hoped it would be. And yet in the scene where his daughter, Zinzi Mandela, talks about coming and visiting him, um, we were able to use the real sound of a prison visit with Mandela that no one had ever heard before and give a little texture and life and, you know, help the listener hopefully experience a little bit um, what that may have felt like and been like. The reality was that I had to see him behind this glass partition and uh, we spoke through a telephone. There were warders on either side of us interrupting the conversation and saying, you cannot speak about that. Whose name is that? You cannot talk about that person. For many years, I never saw my father standing because you would walk in there and find him seated already. So I had no idea even how tall he was. Yeah, it doesn't have to be good audio. If you're, it's, it's like you're standing in the back of the room where you couldn't hear very well anyway, but you're in the room. Exactly, exactly. At least it just kind of like creates the texture of that of that scene. It puts us there. And that's, you know, that's all we can ask for with audio. Right. You know, so much about, with archival audio, so much of it saved are just the, the big special moments. You know, the moment, the kind of the key moments. What, what we, you don't get are those kind of like uh, the, the backstage moments that really tell so much about history, about how history is lived. So when you find those, it's just gold. One of the remarkable interviews was with F.W. de Klerk, the president who collaborated on the Peace Prize with um, Mandela and, of course, the two principals that negotiated the way forward. The opening speech in the beginning of the year 1919 was the most well-kept secret in my whole political career. Our country and all its people have been embroiled in conflict, tension, and violent struggle for decades. Today, I'm able to announce far-reaching decisions. The steps that have been decided are the following. The prohibition of the African National Congress, the Pan-Africanist Congress, the South African Communist Party, and a number of subsidiary organizations is being rescinded. It was a total stunning shock. They didn't know that this was going to happen. I wish to put it plainly that the government has taken a firm decision to release Mr. Mandela unconditionally. I'm serious. I'm serious about bringing this matter to finality without delay. The time for negotiation has arrived. If I may, I'd like to recap what we've just heard from President de Klerk. He has announced that at 3 p.m. tomorrow, Johannesburg time, Nelson Mandela will finally be released after 27 years behind bars. When F.W. de Klerk made that speech, he believed 
that if you released Mandela, who'd become an icon in prison, a living martyr, if you released him, he would quickly be shown to be fallible, old, out of touch, demythologized was the word they used. And all this was wrong. Uh, tell me a little bit about that uh, interview. Mm. Well, you know, de Klerk, I think, wasn't doing many interviews after the fact, but he, you know, he's concerned about his own role in history, the way he's seen. I mean, he got the, the Peace Prize with Mandela, but it's just, it's just hard to figure out how to judge someone like de Klerk in history. He was the guy that made it all happen, releasing Mandela and, and unbanning the ANC. But, you know, how do you celebrate someone who sort of ends a, a reign like that? Um, unclear, but... Well, there was this suggestion from one of the guests who said they thought that they would release him and that he would be uh, frail and human and not be this uh, myth. So that it suggests it suggests that maybe, you know, the whole idea of releasing him wasn't quite as uh, benevolent as it might have seemed later. Yeah. Well, nothing is ever benevolent as they might want it to seem later. But Alistair Sparks, who's the historian and, and journalist who who talked about that. I and mean, he's, he's a really insightful um, um, analyst of South African history and, and politics. And yeah, he was, he was an important interview. Joe, when you talk to so many people about another person, um, inevitably a few things are heard consistently. What would you say most all of your interview subjects agreed upon in their assessment or characterization of Nelson Mandela? What so many of them would say about Mandela, and it's been said so often that it's a bit of a cliche, but it's a cliche that I think is true, is that what he gave to that moment, to the country and to that moment in history, was getting out of prison and not feeling bitter, not feeling angry, but being able to go you know, to the negotiating table to be able to, to, to look forward. You know, People may disagree about the, the pros and cons of of how that country kind of emerged from that moment. But the fact that it emerged basically, you know, essentially bloodless and was able to make that transition into democracy was something that no one really expected. The tone was set by Mandela's feeling of, um, you don't look back in bitterness, you look forward and try to make something better. And then what was the most unexpected thing you heard about him that maybe isn't, part of what you have you know learned to expect to hear about Nelson Mandela well you know I th we we think now of Mandela as this kind of wonderful grandfathery smiley figure and just this lovable old man um but you know you go back in history and you're reminded that um that he was considered a terrorist and you know by many definitions he was a terrorist in the sense that he led the uh, the movement to to take the movement to uh, uh, to you know away from nonviolence to start you know a bombing campaign and and to and to arm the struggle. Now, if Dr. Verwoerd's government doesn't give you the kind of concessions that you want sometime soon, is there any likelihood of violence? There are many people who feel that it is useless and futile for us to continue talking peace and nonviolence against a government whose reply is only savage attacks on an unarmed and defenseless people. And I think the time has come for us to consider 
whether the methods which we have applied so far are adequate. I had made a statement where I called for Armstrong. Naturally, there was a great deal of resistance from the leadership, but I believed that we were moving into that situation because the government had left us with no other alternative. The adoption of an armed struggle after a struggle that had been well known for its nonviolent and peaceful character was somewhat startling. It's really hard to separate, you know, uh, any moment in history from the context in which it happens, but it's also important to go back and remember that Mandela was considered a terrorist, and he, in fact, you know, was leading the Mkanto Wasizwe, the armed struggle of the movement, and, you know, we, history is never as black and white and as easy as, as we like to think. What does his story offer to inspire and inform the still oppressed people around the globe? I mean, it's just interesting that before the transition, I think everyone would have thought that when South Africa changed, it was going to change in an ugly way. You know, it, it, this is uh, this is happening around the time of the Rwanda genocide. And a lot of people, a lot of scholars and historians have pointed out that Rwanda was the case where everyone, ex, you know, expected things would happen peacefully. And South Africa is where they thought all the bloodshed would happen. And so you look back you know, with like a 2020 vision of history, it's just important to remember that no one expected South Africa to change as peacefully in a sense as it did. And, you know, peacefully is a relative term. It was, it was ugly in so many ways and so many people were killed and there was a lot of fighting um, among many groups, but there was, but, you know, something happened in that country at that time to allow a huge, tectonic shift in that country to happen with um, relatively little bloodshed. And there are still so many places where uh, people are fighting for something similar. And so anytime that there is a movement that, in a sense, over a long period of time, in a sense, succeeds, it's like historical inspiration. Right. It's a template. It's a possibility. I mean, you just have to know that it's worked before, <laughs> you know. Right. What do you think this story has to offer to inspire and inform people just trying to manage any conflict in their lives? Hmm. You know, I think there's the moment when um, the ANC sits down with uh, the National Party and Pick Bota, who is uh, one of the one of the um, the ministers of the National Party, the white ruling party, talks about that when they sat down, that Mandela made this, gave this whole history of the Afrikaner people. And that that's how he started, you know, basically saying, I understand your history, I understand your issues, I understand where you're coming from. And I think, and, and that obviously made a huge impact on him, you know, because as he says, you know, here I am about to sit down at the negotiating table with someone I've spent two decades thinking of as a terrorist and he's studied me. He studied, you know, my own grievances and my own history. I think there's just something incredibly powerful about understanding your enemy, both as maybe 
tactically and strategically, but much more than that, understanding the other side, because nothing is ever simple and black and white. And you see the cracks in everyone's story and everyone's kind of history. And so I think that, you know, trying to understand the other side, that's what it's, Mandela made a point of doing that. And I think it's something that, um, it's a lesson that I, that I kind of take away from this whole history is that no one's ever so simple. And you, you know, every time you go into, you know, you have these preconceived notions about the way someone is or the way some history is, you dig a little more and you realize you weren't, you're not right. <laughs> you know, there's always something a little more complicated there. Joe Richmond, the producer, along with Sue Johnson of Mandela, an audio history. It was a series, an hour-long special for Public Radio, produced in 2004. He's also the producer of the wonderful Radio Diaries series you've heard on NPR. Joe, thanks so much for talking with us on Peace Talks Radio today. Thanks, Paul. I'm glad, glad to be here. You can hear our complete interview with Joe Richmond and find a link to his entire program, Mandela, an audio history, at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com where all of the programs in our series are archived dating back to 2002. You can also catch our email address there, and we'd love to hear your feedback on our shows, questions, comments, or your own peacemaking stories. You can order CDs, sign up for a free podcast and newsletter, and it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to help keep Peace Talks Radio on the air. We have our own nonprofit organization, Good Radio Shows Incorporated, that survives apart from your local public radio station thanks to your support. Any donation to our organization really helps. Find out how at peacetalksradio.com. Support for the program also comes from the Paul Bartlett Ray Peace Prize, the Eric Oppenheimer Family Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Good Radio Show's executive director is Nola Daves-Moses. Allie Adelman composed and performed our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Peace Talks Radio.